0: Richard's cousin Mike came back from two tours in Vietnam. He was a war hero, and Richard idolized him. Mike liked to brag about everything he'd done overseas. He showed Richard the Polaroids he kept of at least 20 women he claimed to have raped and murdered. Mike also taught Richard what he learned as a soldier—stealth, precision, and combat. He wanted him to know how to fight and kill. And we're back. I'm Gil Contreras, and we're speaking with retired sheriff's lieutenant uh, from homicide bureau, Gil Carrillo. Gil, so you had these multiple crimes occurring in multiple jurisdictions. You had picked up a couple of cases, and you began to put this together as as one suspect. What what are the what are the things that you saw? What are the commonalities that you you observed? And how did you pick up on them?
1: It was. Uh first, the knowledge given to me by a professor out of Cal State, L.A., Dr. Robert Morneau, retired FBI agent, and I took two semesters of advanced criminal investigation pertaining to sex crimes. And he started, he pounded stuff in there about sex crimes that any reasonable sex crimes investigator should know. His were any reasonable and prudent sex crime investigator would know. Well, I saw things that weren't readily recognizable to everybody else. Uh, a noise that was made at the first uh, – before he shot Maria Hernandez, an intentional noise. I mean, he could have walked up behind her, shot her, and he didn't. He wanted to be seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with Dale Okazaki, he wanted to be seen. Sai Lin Yu, he wanted to be seen. And there is a certain deviancy that uh, causes arousal within a deviant that he gets thrills off of watching people frightened. And that's a sex crime. So I could see that. their physical descriptions of what was going on. Uh, a footprint that was uh, found both at adult murder scenes and at the scene of a child abduction. And that was the via footprint uh, model 440, mm-hmm. where 1,356 pair of model 440s entered the United States from Taiwan to New York for distribution throughout the U.S., Six pair ended up in the state of California. One pair ended up in L.A.
0: So, that's
1: amazing. So that's a pretty tight piece of evidence when you start looking at, you know, everything going on. So that's what drove me. Now, it was difficult, and I don't blame any cop. You know, other than the ones that were calling me personal names, <laughs> but I don't blame any cop that didn't believe me. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my dear friends today, who actually, when my original training officer. Uh, was off sick for a while, I asked to be put with this guy because he was good. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sergeant Ray Verdugo, uh, we're very close today still. Mm -hmm. And he confessed to me just a few months back that he really, he was astonished. He really didn't believe that it was one guy doing all this stuff. And he remembered me talking about the kids and he says he just couldn't buy it. Until towards the end, when he realized, you know, all the evidence that was coming in, and then certainly after the conviction and how we filed cases initially, and we dropped the kitty cases mm-hmm. before trial, right. he said, "You were right, you know." And so, but I could understand because nobody in criminal history had ever been documented doing the things that we were alleging that so, I was alleging.
0: At the right. Time. So that that's the thing that I, I find interesting is, so if the seasoned. Long-time homicide detectives, if, if they're not seeing it, how does a guy brand new to, to homicide, how, how, does, how does that come together in your head? Why do you think that happened? Why did, why did it come together like that for you?
1: Well, I, I, I tell you, the education given to me by Dr. Morneau and the ability to see it and notice it and say, there it is, and not give up on it, uh, those people, I could understand why they didn't believe. It hadn't been done; it hadn't been documented. When the FBI came out here to help us out for criminal profiling, they were quite honest and said, "We've never heard anything like this. This is never done. A renowned psychologist out of New York and one out of UCLA uh, said that we were fu- essentially was full of hot air <laughs> because one man wouldn't uh, do this. It's not you're not a pedophile and doing adults, boys, girls. Old women, you know, it just wasn't there, Mm -hmm. and yet I could see evidence, and I could see, you know, if you don't have a closed mind about things, and eventually, the theory that I pulled, that I was pushing, came to be,
0: turned out to be correct. You know, um, I had a friend who is just retired, actually, at the beginning of uh, 2020, from LAPD, 30-year veteran. He was a detective. And uh, we were talking the other day um, through Facebook, and, and I said, hey, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Gil Carrillo from uh, the Night Stalker case. And, and he goes, and he sent me a message back, and he goes, he, he goes, you know, I, I saw the documentary, so I thought it was really good, but it made my department look like a bunch of buffoons. <laughs> and then he said, but if the shoe fits, dot, dot, dot. So it, it, it,
1: They were th- not, let me go officially on record right now, they were not buffoons. I mean, if you talk – if a Dodger baseball player makes an error, the whole team isn't bad. Right. The individual is. They botched up a fingerprint on a car, got away with a stolen car. Right. That wasn't LAPD. That was an officer. There was a motor officer, and the motor officer didn't follow through like he should have. Mm-hmm. He made a mistake. That's all. Right. The second thing that made that documentary, and they mentioned LAPD, and – LABD shouldn't be blamed. The executive from the sheriff's department should have been blamed. And that is, we figured that Richard, we knew he was going to a dentist. We didn't know he was Richard. We knew our suspect was going to a dental office in Chinatown. We went to that dentist. The dentist describes his patient, and yes, it sounds like it's the right guy. And I got a copy of his x-rays, and I took him to a dentist friend of mine because it was hard to communicate with this dentist because a uh, language communication. I mm-hmm. took it to my buddy, and he said, This guy's going to need to, he'll be back in the dentist shortly. He's got an impacted tooth in there, and, you know, he, he's got to go back. He's going to be in an awful lot of pain. So we put two members of the sheriff's department undercover inside that dental office, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> they were happy campers making money, <laughs> you know, working overtime, and it was all good. An executive from my department decided, you know what? That's a waste of time. We're not even sure it's the right guy. We're not. We don't know when he's going to come back. Pull those guys out of there. LAPD has a robbery box, and they did. You when know, mm-hmm. they have a robbery, they can go ahead and hook up, hook up the machine inside. If Richard shows up, have him push the button, and they will respond immediately, right here from uh, partner center on mm-hmm. the street. So he'll get there within minutes. Right. So we said, okay, we did it. They went. They set the box up. First day, the box is in. That evening, I get a call from the dentist. wanting to know what happened? How come we didn't go? He pushed the button. Several, nobody ever showed up. Right. And it wasn't LAPD. It was a malfunctioning button. Mm-hmm. That's all it was. So LAPD, we had a better working relation on this case with the investigators from robbery homicide than I had ever enjoyed. Mm-hmm. It was a pleasure working with them. And they should not be badmouthed. You know, mm-hmm. it made them look. Guys from my department been calling. Are you kidding me? You know, why
0: they do the, Right?
1: They, they didn't do anything wrong. It was a couple of individuals. That's all it was.
0: Right. But in, you know, in the 80s, I, I do remember that, you know, there was some animus between departments and, um, you know, kind of rivalry between the Sheriff's Department and LAPD. And I remember uh, down in the Harbor, Harbor Division, uh, some LAPD officers had stopped two deputies in an unmarked car and held them and they did a whole video about that and you know eventually I'm going to put that link up on on my website <laughs> w- with this interview uh, because it's pretty funny it was a pretty funny incident it was. but but there was you know there was that animus between uh, between law enforcement agencies at, at that time.
1: It, w- I worked during the 80s and there was nothing more than friendly rivalry in the 70s, Holland Beck and East LA station had friendly rivalry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was all done and fun. Nobody was—I don't think anybody took it seriously. Uh, in this case, with a case of this magnitude, we knew that there was going to be a lot of publicity, and we knew executives were going to be all over it. We sat down with the our adversaries, our cohorts from LAPD. Leroy uh, Orozco and Paul Tippin. And we said, okay, fellas, let's lay it all out on the table. We will hold absolutely nothing back, and we expect the same from you guys. We don't care who makes an arrest. We don't care who does what. Mm -hmm. We just need to work together to get this guy off the streets. We don't care about executives, and we're not going to go to executives about this. We're going to go in between each other. And that's what we did. And it was a great Great working relationship. The other stuff, it's all friendly, right? Just like baseball teams joking. You know, you want to beat the guys, you want to be better, and you want to have bragging rights. Uh, The day that Richard Ramirez was arrested, he was handcuffed by a deputy sheriff in a county area, and the guys, the blue meanies, the guys from (laughs) LAPD had just crossed the line because they had been chasing telephone calls because he was jumping fences in the city, came over, didn't ask anything, just took him right out of the deputy's car. Didn't take off the deputy's handcuffs, put them in their car, and hauled them off to Hollenbeck. Mm-hmm. And when, in fact, the reality are, he should have gone right to East L.A. station and he had them And they didn't. The guys from East L.A., the deputies, they were so angry. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to they wanted to do funny things to that deputy to let the guy go. <laughs> this is the biggest arrest in the county in history, and now right. you're letting it go. Right. And all I did was laugh. And I said, hey, had it been you guys chasing them into the city, you'd have done the same thing. Right. Bottom line, the guy's in custody. We really don't care.
0: Right. We're talking with Gil Carrillo, who's a retired uh, Sheriff's Homicide Bureau detective who, who worked on the uh, Richard Ramirez Night Stalker case along with Detective Frank Salerno. Gil, I want to talk about the crimes for a moment. You know, just at, at the beginning of this segment, we heard the clip about uh, Ramirez's c- uh, uncle. Was it uncle or cousin Mike uh, was a v- who was a Vietnam veteran and taught him these things about stealth, moving stealthily and how to kill and, and all those things. Um, I remember uh, reading Phil Carlo's book when it, when it came out, and it was, it was uh, an eerie feeling to read. Cause I used to you know, read and write late at night when everybody's asleep. You know, From 10 to 2 was my golden hour to do media stuff. And I remember reading this book uh, during those hours, and you know, after a while, I, w- <laughs> I would like turn slowly and look at the uh, the sliding glass door, like I can't see I was, you know, it just it's an eerie feeling because there was no pattern to his victim selection. And once he got into the house, he wasn't just burglarizing and murdering people; I mean he was doing some really uh, crazy things to people. And, and then doing things like actually having snacks and spending later, spending more time at a crime scene than what is normal. Uh, talk about that for a moment, just how he selected victims. or uh, I guess when you're investigating since there was no pattern to his victim selection, that's probably what kind of threw off the task force as well. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Well, there's no, his only consistency was his inconsist- inconsistency. Uh, he used. Uh, firearms, he used hammers, he used blunt force trauma, ligature strangulation knives uh, you name it he did it. Victims varied so it was varied and it was difficult to follow him everything, everything about him was was difficult
0: and I remember in, in the uh, um, in the documentary they kind of profiled this guy that uh, you guys thought was the suspect his name was Arturo Robles and um that was a kind of a funny story talk about that for a moment well he was i was actually at east la station
1: walking through and i was approached i said hey we had a report these girls reported that uh, some guy was following them and she's got a license plate number got a description so looked at it and he'd been following the girls around we f- followed up and i pulled a surveillance team in and i said okay everything you can, learn about him, follow him, find him and follow him. And he was working in the city of commerce. And uh, then he went home that night and they called me up and they said, Gail, this ain't your guy. You know, the guy has hair down to the middle of his back and yeah, he's tall. He's light complected, but you know, he's just a working guy came home. I said, okay, stay on him. And they were a little upset, but I made him stay on him. One of the descriptors we had was the guy used to wear a members only type jacket. Mm -hmm. And so he came out, his house that evening and he's dressed in all black, members only type jacket, and he got his hair and he stuffed it down the back of his jacket. And so he started following girls around that night. So we did a surveillance on him. Eventually, uh, I ended up taking him into custody because he he lost the surveillance a couple of days into it. And so we had to do something. So I arrested him and we held a live line. And he just wasn't my freak. We, we did a search warrant on his house. And he had a lot of freaky stuff in there. But there was, as my old training officer told me, uh, this guy may be a freak, but he's not your freak. So we just let him go.
0: I, I thought that was a great line uh, in the documentary. He's a freak. He's just not your freak. Just not your freak. <laughs> I'm Gil Contreras. We're talking with retired uh, Sheriff's Homicide Detective Gil Carrillo. And we will be back in a moment.